It's good to see you. If you are able, we're going to stand for the reading of the word. By the way, uh, so we're, we're trying out some new stuff, and so I'm terrible at remembering what we're doing. Uh, so if I don't say so, just know every week you are welcome to come and gather up here in the front for worship. So you don't need an invitation. Uh, it's just been something we've been doing, and we totally forgot to invite you to do that today. Uh, so we're trying to function more like a family. So you don't need an invitation. Just come and be my best friend up here in the front row. We'll be besties forever. So join us up here for worship. Uh, so there's that. Also, we're trying out... Um, uh, one, we want to honor the Word of God by standing whenever we kind of read our passage for the, time, for the day. Uh, and, so, and then after we're done, we're going to try being liturgical to the best of our ability. And we're, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you're going to say? And we believe it. And we believe it. All right? So that's what we're going to do. So we are in Matthew chapter 4, looking at Jesus' time in the wilderness as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew. And here is what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, I just pray that over the next few minutes, uh, as as we share and as we talk about these scriptures and Jesus, the, the temptations, the tests that you faced, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts about the things that you want to accomplish in us in times of testing. Lord, I pray that the things that I say will point attention to you and you alone. Lord, that you give my friends a discerning ear to hear what's from you and to cast away anything that's not. I pray, Lord, that the spirit of truth would be present in this room to pierce our hearts and minds, to draw us closer into your heart so that we become more like you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So, uh, by the way, um, uh, just I just want to acknowledge that the the teaching that I've been doing uh, lately has been just a little bit different, and that's kind of by design. I just felt like a, a little nudge from the Lord uh, lately that He wanted me to to structure things a bit differently. So, so I just want to acknowledge that maybe the way that I'm teaching and and um, and some of that has been just a bit different. And this might not be a forever thing; it's a right now thing. Uh, so, but but hopefully, it's it's building up the body, and I think that's what the Lord is. Uh, wanting to do right now. So, uh, so as we have been in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we have been on this journey of kind of looking at how Jesus fulfills 
all these Old Testament prophecies, how he shows himself to be the Messiah. And then now in this particular instance in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, we're seeing how Jesus, his life in some ways mirrors the life of Israel back, way back in the Old Testament, that once they were freed from Egypt and they were set free from slavery, they went through these waters. Jesus did the same exact thing. He gets baptized in the River Jordan. He goes through the waters. And the very next thing is uh, he ends up, uh, they end up going into the wilderness. And that's exactly what we see here in Jesus. And we've talked a little bit about what is the wilderness and why do we experience that? Uh, why do we experience these times of testing, and uh, and and what is it that that we're we should think about that? And we've talked about that in a couple different ways, but one of the things that's been really present for me as I have been like uh, digging into this week in and week out is thinking about the difference between what God wants to do and what the enemy wants to do in times of testing. What our enemy, what he tries to do in the life of Jesus, and more on this in just a minute, is he tries to bring disconnection. Whoa, that would have been bad. This thing is slippery can't put my feet on there. The other one's like more stable, I feel like. So uh, I have to sit because look at how short this guy is. It's so tiny. Can someone just come and hold it up at this level? That would be better. So I'm going to sit, but hopefully not fly off the stage. Um, so what the enemy wants to do is bring disconnection through temptation. He, he's trying not just to get Jesus to sin, but to put a wedge somehow between Jesus and his father by getting him to doubt who he is, by getting to doubt who God is, to, and those kinds of things. And so that's exactly what the enemy does in times of testing. He tries to bring us things that will make us feel disconnected from the heart of the Father. Whereas what the Father wants to do in times of testing is draw us closer to himself. He actually wants to show us things about who we are and about who he is so that we can understand more of his heart. That's, that's his heart. And so we have both of those things going on in this, in this time of testing. And so the first one that we've talked a little bit about the, over the last couple of weeks was this test around uh, the appetite, how Jesus is hungry. And so the enemy comes along and tries to convince him to turn the stones into bread. And we've said that's like was like a surface level temptation. The real thing was like, what is Jesus more hungry for? What does he really believe is the most important thing that will sustain him? And he says, it's the word of the Lord. That man doesn't live on bread alone, by every, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus passed that test in flying colors. I'm more hungry for God to sustain me by his word. And so we went through, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to at least the last few minutes of last week's message so you can learn what it means to be sustained by the word of God. This one is a bit different. The devil takes him up. <clears throat> By the way, I don't know how this actually worked. Have you ever thought about this? Like, how does this work? Like, so the devil takes Jesus up to the holy city and has him stand on the highest point of the temple, right? Like, I don't know how, how my, most scholars think that this was some kind of vision that Jesus actually had, that, that this is happening in kind of in, in this kind of place. Has him stand on the highest point of the temple. Hey, throw yourself down from here. And, and the devil quotes scripture at Jesus because... If you really are the son of God, what the scripture says is angels will come and rescue. You're not going to get hurt at all. You, and and, and you'll, if you do this, if you throw yourself down, you will know and everybody else will know that you truly are the son of God, that God truly approves of you. And this temptation, the last one's about appetite. This temptation is about approval. And the test that we all go through and that we all have a desire and a need for approval. Now let me just say a little bit about, about what I mean by this. As human beings, 
we are wired to need love and affirmation from others. God has built us, he has made us creatures who from birth need to know that we are loved and that we are affirmed by others. And as a matter of fact, uh, we've got counselors and therapists in the room who could tell you a whole lot more about this than what I could. If you don't get that when you were a child, it sets you up for all different kinds of hardships in life. If when you are developing as a baby, you don't get that love and that acceptance, it can create all different kinds of complications for you. God has, has wired us as human beings to need to know that we are loved and that we are accepted and that we are safe. There's been all different kinds of studies that, that show how this manifests itself later in all different kinds of things for us as human beings. Like God has made us to need love and approval and affection from other people. We need that from a source outside of ourselves. All the self-like talk and all the encouragement that you could ever give yourself is not enough. That's not exactly how God designed us. We were designed to be affirmed and approved by him and to be affirmed and loved and approved within loving community. That's how God wired us to be. Let me go back to the garden. Let's go back to Genesis. In the, in the book of Genesis, we're, we're created by God. We're placed in the garden. What is the very first thing that God says about human beings? That we are very good. Actually, it's, it's interesting in Hebrew, it says good, good. So everything else is good, we're good, good. So the very first word that God has to say about humanity is that he loves us and that he approves of us. That we are good. The very first thing that Adam saw when he opened up his eyes was this beautiful world that God created for, I, I, don't, I have no idea how to fathom what that would have been like. Apparently, he and God just hung out in the cool of the day, like Adam's just, just hanging out. But then God says, you know what? It's not enough that he would just receive my love and approval. It's not good for a person to be alone. I'm going to create a suitable helper for her. I'm going to put someone on the planet because human beings need this, cre- need this connection with another people, another person. So God creates Eve and puts him with Adam. And in that state, before they do the dumb thing with the tree, I'm going to talk about here in just a second, They are perfectly loved and affirmed by God, and apparently there's no shame or condemnation between each other. That is how we were designed to be, guys, and that's how it will be one day when God sets everything right. One day there won't be any shame or condemnation. One day we will stand before God absolutely and totally free, and with all of those people who also needed that love and affirmation from God, and we'll be able to give that to to each other in a way that we've never known. To me, that sounds awesome. Like there's, there's no part of creation and no part of human nature in the way that we live that isn't somehow affected by the fall that I'm going to talk about here in just a second. So what happens? So, uh, all right, so fast forward a chapter or two into Genesis chapter three. We've got Adam and Eve in the garden. God says, look, you can have all of this place. The whole entire thing is all yours. Whatever you want to eat, but there's this one thing I don't want you to eat of that tree, of, of this particular fruit, of that particular tree, because if you do, it's going to harm you, right? Think about this. It's amazing. Like, it's like when you tell a kid, don't touch something, you're like, oh, but I have to touch it right now, like, right? That's what happened for Adam and Eve. All this beauty, all, God's like saying, I couldn't bless you anymore. Everything you could ever want is yours. Just Stay away from this thing, it's going to hurt you. So what's the enemy do? The serpent comes along and begins to tempt Eve. Let me just, for the sake of being accurate, let me just go there to make sure that we're all on the same page about what happens. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. 
So he says to the woman, did God really say? That sounds a lot like the same voice that says, if you really are the son of God. Do you hear that same voice? It's the same deceptive voice. Did God really say you must not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, well, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, you will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good uh, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is where the whole world unravels, right here, this, this moment in time. This deceiver, the same one who shows up to Jesus in the wilderness, is the same one who shows up here and begins to plant this seed in Eve. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because I think it helps us to understand. So Eve, God said you can have anything in the garden, but he said you can't have that. It seems to me like God is withholding something from you that you need, right? So God doesn't want you to be like him. There's something kind of deficient in you. There's something that's lacking in you. You're not as good as you could be. And the way to be as good as what you could be was to be go ahead and take the fruit of this tree. Do you hear the voice of the deceiver there? That first seed is planted. You are not good enough. Up until this point, humanity is very good, and God's creation all around them says, you are awesome, I love you, I've provided all of this, and all of a sudden, the voice of the serpent comes along and says, I don't think that you're good enough. Unfortunately, Eve listens to this voice and says, yeah, I guess, I guess there is this thing. I, I want what this tree has to offer. Maybe there is something that God is withholding from me. And so she goes ahead and takes and eats the fruit. And then she passes along to Adam. And the very next thing that happens in the story is all of a sudden, this, the, the feeling that they had of feeling like, man, we have everything that we need and God has provided for us. And there's no shame and condemnation. They immediately go to shame. They notice that they're naked. They notice, oh, there's something wrong with me and there's something wrong with you. we got to cover this up right now. So instead of perfectly accepting and loving one another, now there's rejection. Now there's self-hatred. Now there's shame. And now there's another layer of this because now not only do they feel that towards each other, they run and hide for God. How foolish, right? How silly. So they feel this sense of disconnection. Remember how I said that temptation from the enemy is always about disconnection? Well, guess what? He succeeded in this. He brings this disconnection between them and God, not because God doesn't want to be around them, but because they feel this sense of shame, and so they hide from God. And so from that moment forward, human beings have always struggled with this need for approval. There's something wrong with me, and I'm not sure how God feels about me. And there's something wrong with me, and I'm not sure how you feel about me. And so what we do as human beings, the cycle, that, the thing that happened with Adam and Eve is the same thing that happens with us. We do all kinds of things to cover ourselves up, to, to deal with our shame, and to make ourselves feel like more approved and more loved by God and by other people. Think about it for just a second. Think about the swirl of humanity 
to try to win people's approval. Think about the swirl of humanity to try to convince God by doing all the right things that they are worthy and love of acceptance. This is the story that plays out for our human beings over and over and over again. We need that love. We need that acceptance from the Lord. We were designed to receive that from other people. And so that thing that God put in us that was good and holy and was meant for our benefit in the fall gets twisted and distorted. And that desire for approval that we all need now all of a sudden becomes this, this terrible swirl that we're stuck in of feeling like we're never good enough, of feeling like we have to earn God's love and affection, of feeling like we have to do certain things to win other, other people's love and affection. We're caught in this cycle. We're caught in this swirl. And now, I mean, to make matters worse, we have this little device that we carry around with ourselves and all these different platforms that, that put us in the position of getting more people to love and approve me, right? How, what a trick of the enemy, right? He took something, this innate, the reason why social media exists and the ability to like and share and all this kind of stuff, this, the reason why this exists is because we are designed and wired to seek approval from other people. Like, it, it's in us. And what the enemy does is the same thing he does with everything. He twists and distorts this thing into something it's not meant to be. And what happens is the more we try to feed it through unholy and ungodly means, the more it creates this monster of approval in us. Because when we're driven by approval for God, we think that our relationship with God is only as good as how much I pray. And my relationship with God is only as good is my lack of sin. My relationship with God is only as good as how many times I show up to church. My relationship with God is only based off of, uh, and, and whether or not he approves me and loves me, is based off of how much I read my Bible. And the problem with that kind of thinking is when you fall short, then you begin to question God's love. Right? Come on, guys, you know this is true. And the problem is that when we try to live out our, our relationship trying to win approval from other people is that then we we are either lifted up or cast down by the opinions of other people we're only as good as other people think of us or as bad as other people think of us and we're caught in this trap and once you're in that trap it's really hard to get out of that trap of living for the approval of other people living to be accepted by other people even people who think that they don't care what people think care what people think like, I can, I can remember in high school there being, like, the, this group of, like, kids who, like, dress different and, like, you know, like, we don't care what anybody thinks. But then they all look the exact same. It's like, well, you don't care what they think, but you care what those people think, right? And this is, this is so ingrained in us. Now, the truth is not everybody deals with this at the same level in the same way. There are just some, some people who, they have different kinds of struggles, but the struggle for approval is not necessarily something that they fight like other people do. But all of us have a little bit. All of us have at least a little bit of like, I wonder, does God really love me? What does he really think about me? I wonder, what do these people think about me? I've actually, in my own life, uh, this has been a struggle at different times in different ways. There, I would say probably seven, eight years ago, this was like a, a bigger thing. Now I'm just getting older and I kind of care a little bit less. Like, but there's still a part of me. Actually, th this weekend I've had this opportunity to share in multiple venues and preach and do some different stuff. And I realized in every one of those, it was uh, the possibility of a temptation to try to do what I was doing in those environments for the approval of other people. 
And every single environment, I walked away going, well, I wonder what people thought. And it doesn't, for me, turn into something that drives me. It used to. Jen can tell you, my Sunday nights and Monday mornings used to severely suck. Because I used to walk away from every sermon feeling not good enough. Who's going to leave the church now? Who didn't like what I had to say this time? Now, I would work through it, but it was still driving me. And that feeling starts with us when really young. And actually, it's really hard because we learn how we learn really easy what helps to get approval from other people. You learn, each, each family has a set of values. And in your family, you learn really quick, this is what mom and dad like. And when I do this, I get praise. And when I don't do this, I don't get praise. And so we figure this stuff out. And then all of a sudden, we're still acting like kids when we're grown-ups right? Still trying to do the same. You only, it only takes a second to go back home with mom and dad after you've been away for a little while and you find yourself being that nine-year-old kid. You know what I'm talking about? Come on, think back to Thanksgiving. Think back to Christmas when all your family was together. We're, we're just wired this way as human beings. Well, the enemy knows this. He knows that there is an innate desire. And if Jesus is human in every way, but sinless, if he's fully God and fully man, that desire for love and affection and approval, that's in Jesus too. And so the enemy comes along and says, hey, if you really are the son of God, if God really loves you and approves of you, make him show you right now. Make him prove it. He said in his word that if he did love and approve you, if you really were his special servant, then he wouldn't let bad things happen to you. Anyone believe that about God? Come on, be honest. Let's be honest. In this room, all of us at certain times believe that if God really loved us, this bad thing wouldn't be happening to me, right? Because we often attach God's love and approval of us to our circumstances. Well, if anything, this, this temptation of Jesus and him being sent out into the wilderness should show us the exact opposite of that. So th- think about this with me. This is, this is an aside. This is not what I had planned on talking about. Right before this episode where Jesus goes into the wilderness, we have that, the time where Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. And we have the voice of the Father coming from heaven. This is my son who I love and in whom I am well pleased. Right? You remember this from a few weeks ago? If it was me writing the story, the very next thing that would have happened would have been Jesus launching into his public ministry. It would have been like, okay, it's go time. I know the Father loves me, and because he loves me, it's time to do all the victorious things. I'm going to go start, like, healing people, casting out demons, teaching to the masses. I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. Instead, the way the Father shows his love to Jesus is to send him into obscurity and hardship for 40 days. Right? That story is not the story how I think it should work out. Like, but God doesn't think like we think. He knows there's something for Jesus in the wilderness that he's not going to be able to have any other, any other way. And so this time of, of Jesus being led into the wilderness is to lead Jesus into something he has for him. And it's not what's the hard thing that's happening to Jesus is not a sign of God's love or lack of love. It's something totally different. And so the enemy comes along in this weak state and says, look, if you're really the son of God, go ahead and jump down. And if God really loves you, he'll rescue you. And what does Jesus say? 
It's an interesting response. You're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. It's kind of an interesting thing, interesting response. It's, it's one that's, a, that's not obvious on the surface. Why is Jesus saying we're, we're not supposed to test? Well, yes, it's true we're not supposed to test God, but, but specifically, why aren't we supposed to test God in this particular area? What's, what's the challenge here? Well, as I've thought about it, reflected about it, and, and kind of dug in, there's a diversity of opinions. But one of the things that rises to the, to the surface as you, as you think about it and you put it in the context of the, of the larger life of Jesus is Jesus is not supposed to make God show him that he approves of him. And one of the reasons why that's the case is I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who feels really insecure. There's nothing that you can say to a person who's super insecure to let them know that you really do love them and that you really are on their side. If they are convinced on the inside that there's something fundamentally wrong with them, that they're not loved and approved, there's nothing that you will be able to say to get through that to that person. Anyone ever experienced that? Or maybe you've even had it yourself. Like, I don't know why this person's saying that they love me, but I'm having a really hard time believing it. There's nothing that we can say or do as human beings. There's nothing that God could say or do for us as human beings that would ultimately convince us that he loves us. Because there's still some, there's always that peace inside of us that's going to be confronted with the things around us that cause us to doubt whether or not that's true. I know everyone sitting in here right now, if, you, if you, you have a list of prayers, you've got one on your top of your list. If God could do this for me, then I would know for certain that he loved me. I'm telling you, that is not true. I'm telling you it's not true. God did amazing things. Jesus did amazing things while he was on the planet and delivered people of all kinds of things. And where are those people when he goes to the cross? Nowhere to be found. Where are the people who have been delivered by, in their most desperate hour from demonic possession and been healed and all these other, where are all these people? God has done amazing things in my life, things that are undeniable. There have been prayers in my life that I just, I absolutely know for sure without a doubt. God, he broke in from, from, from heaven into earth and rescued and saved me. But then the next hard thing happens and I'm right back in the same place of wondering, where do I stand with God? What have I done to make him mad this time? Anybody else identify with this? Like, there is, like, there is nothing that we could ask God to do that would, you would just know definitively God loves you. So we're not supposed to test God in this. And the reason why we're not supposed to test God in this is because he's already told us that he loves us. If we go back to the context of Israel and what, what, uh, where Jesus takes this quote, it comes from the book of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where, where God is instructing his people through Moses about how, what happened uh, when they were going through the wilderness and what's going to happen as they go into the promised land. The, the, the context is they had already tested God whether or not he would be willing to provide water for them, whether or not he would be willing to provide food for them. Well, God had already shown himself over and over and over again that he would take care of him. For those of you who know the story, think about this. The 
The Israelites are freed from Egypt through a miraculous display. Actually, multiple miraculous displays. Those 12 plagues. And then there, the, the Red Sea parts, and they walk through the Red Sea. And then the, in their impatience, they're like, well, I guess God has led us out here to abandon us. Let's build a big golden calf and worship it instead. Right? Like, what more proof do you need as the nation of Israel that God loves you than a sea literally parting? What more proof do you need to know that God's going to love you and take care of you than bread literally falling from heaven? Quail being at your feet when you wake up in the morning. Water coming. What more proof do you need that God loves you? So that's why way back when in the Old Testament, say, don't put the Lord your God to the test. You have to trust what he has already said. You have to trust what he already says is true about you. What if way back in the garden, Adam and Eve said, I know we're not supposed to eat of this tree, but I know that God made me good, good. And I know there's nothing lacking in me, and there's nothing that that can provide me that my father won't provide for me. And so I'm not going to eat of the tr- fruit of this tree. I'm not going to put the Lord God to the test. What if the nation of Israel had done that when they were wandering in the desert to say, you know what? We're not going to doubt God. He's been there for us. He'll be there again. We work, we work from approval, not for approval. That's the difference. That's the way that God has designed us to be. And when we forget that and we work for approval rather than from approval, we get things really screwed up. And so Jesus says, no, we we don't do that. I'm not going to make God show me anything. I'm going to trust his word that he said, I am his beloved son. And he is well pleased. Right? But man, is that hard. The test isn't we put a test on God to make him show us something. The test is really for us. Do we believe the word of the Lord about what he said? Look, I, I wish that I had a, like, a more like, grace-filled, like, nice way to say it. But at the end of the day, sometimes God presents us and says, Do you believe what I have said? Do you believe what I have said? Do you believe what I have said? And for us on this side of the cross, this is a challenge for us as believers to put our faith and our trust in God's redemptive work on the cross and says, because of the blood that was shed for you, you are white as snow. You are clean. You are saint, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what's happening around you. I love you. The reality is God put, he gave us what we, should, what we didn't deserve, which was an ultimate I love you in giving Jesus on the cross. I said right now, we don't put the Lord, the God, to the test, and there's nothing he could do to show us. That's kind of a lie because he gave us his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrates his love for this, right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated his love for us over and over and over again. But it's really hard to believe. Old habits die hard. That desire, that drive that we have for approval, man, it's ingrained into us. And I think part of the reason why it's such a challenge is because we don't know it's there. We we know it's there, but we tend to not deal with it. 
we, we tend to be dismissive of it and, and not realize how much we're being motivated to try to get approval from the Lord or to try to get approval from other people. This is why they think the Apostle Paul, he would put this in the category of take every thought captive. Being able to recognize how are you being motivated to try to win over God's love and approval or win the approval of other people. Now, as an aside, let me just say this. Just because God says, I love you, does not mean that he loves everything that you do. I love my children. I don't love everything that they do. It doesn't change my love for them. It doesn't change my affection for them. Right? That's how God feels about you. When the, when the prodigal leaves the father's home, it's not like the father was delighted. Yes, son. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He takes the, takes the inheritance of the father, and he goes and squanders it, kind of living a wild life. He, wastes the, he brings shame and dishonor on the household by taking the inheritance of the father early and then going out and doing stuff that Gentiles were supposed to do. That's the context of the story. He's bringing shame on the father's house. There's no way the father was like, yeah, this is the best. Thank you, son, for doing this. But yet, when that son decides to come home, what does the father do? He's looking and he's waiting from afar off. I can't wait until my son comes home. And then when he sees the son coming back, he runs. He does a shameful thing. He puts himself in his own position of shame. This is not something that Jewish men do. They do not run. Like, I mean, they might run for fun other times. They don't run like this. All the villagers in the context, everybody who'd be listening to this parable of Jesus would have gone, wait now, he's doing what? Because apparently this is a wealthy man of some means. He has, enough now, he has enough money to throw this incredible, awesome feast and to give away his ring and his robe. This is a man of means. And now this respectable member of the community who has been shamed is now putting himself even more in a position of shame by running and going to get the son. That is the length that the father will go to let you know that you are loved. And he loves you while before you squandered everything. He loves you while you squandered everything. And he loves you when you come back home. He is love. It's a definition of his character. Doesn't mean he loves the sin. The reason why he hates the sin in our life is because it causes this cycle that we have. It's not like God has nothing better to do with this time that he decided to make up a bunch of rules. Like, well, what are the rules of the game I want to play here? It's like, no, he knows how we're wired and he knows that sin is destructive to us. He knows that sin produces shame, and shame produces disconnection with him and with other people. And so that's why he's so zealous against that. But behind all of that is still you. The, one, the Psalm 139 you, who's beautiful, who before you were ever born, while you were in your mother's womb, he knew your whole future. Like, that's you. You're born from a place of approval. Not to earn approval. If it seems like I'm excited about this, this is a truth that's in my spirit because I've dealt with it a lot. And because I see how it plays out over and over again in different relationships. How it plays out in marriage. How it plays out in our workplace. Where instead of living from a place of freedom, the place of I am loved and I am secure, we're trying to get security through our relationships. We're trying to earn security with God. And he's already said, your place with me is secure. So that's why Jesus is like, we don't put God to the test in this. We stand on what he's already said. 
we take him at his word. And because Jesus does that here in this place, for the rest of his life, for his ministry, he is going to consistently only do what the will of his father is, regardless of what people think about it. I, I, like, I, I don't even know what this would be like to live that level of freedom to where one, like, I'm not doing anything to earn God's love and affection. I already have it. And so I just get to have fun with the father. All right, father, who do we want to bless today? I'm not doing this, like, I'm not doing this to make you love me. I know you already love me. And the fact that you love me makes me want to love you more. Instead of being caught in that loop of shame and trying to get approval, he's caught in this loop of love. You love me already? That's awesome. I love you too. Let's have fun. Let's go cast out demons today. Let's go find someone who no one wants to be around. Let's include them in our family. Let's do this, Father. That's a very different place. Well, then I've got to build my ministry. So the Lord, I'm, I'm talking pastor talks right now. So this is, this, is, this is stuff that happens that pastors talk about. I've got, got to earn my place. I've got, got to make sure that what I do with my life really matters so that God will love me and he will accept me. Jesus is not driven to try to make God love him when he feeds 5,000 people. He's not driven to make God love him when Lazarus is raised from the dead. That's not his motivation. He knows he's loved. And so in every given moment, he's able to step into the perfect will of my father. It's like, well, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what he's saying. Like, that's freedom. That's freedom. And then Jesus is not doing what he does to try to win the praise and the applause and the approval of people. Actually, at every turn, people are trying to get Jesus to do stuff. And he's like, nah, we're not doing that. Uh-oh, Siri. Hi, Siri. Uh, uh, you can't hear me. I'm talking loud. Why? <clears throat> right? I mean, his own family. It's like, Jesus, tone it down a little bit at one point. Like, you're going to get killed. And then other times they're like, well, Jesus, if you're going to really do this thing, do this thing. Let everybody see who you really are. And it's like, no, nah, it's not my time. I'm not doing that. The apostles are wanting him to do all kinds of stuff. After, even after his death and resurrection, even after all the speeches about laying down his life for people and washing the disciples' feet, they're like, okay, now, so when do we get on with the business of conquering Rome? When is the, when is the kingdom of heaven going to come and we're going to take out this place? And Jesus is like, yeah, that's not what this thing is about, right? He is not given to the opinions of people. He's not beholden to the opinions of people. Again, what would it look like to have that level of freedom in your life? To do what you do because it's the loving thing to do. To walk, as it says in the Gospel of John, full of grace and truth. Oh, man. I feel like a lot of times I have to be gracious or truthful. Anyone else? I don't know how to walk in the tension of being full of grace and truth, but Jesus does it perfect. In every relationship, in every situation, I know how to walk in grace and truth. I think that's a level of freedom that we're going to have, but we have to face this approval thing. We have to call it out when we see it in us. We have to be aware of how it's motivating us, and we have to make sure that we're turning towards truth. What I would think, what, the, the way this has worked out for me, practically speaking, is to really practice every day where I recognize I'm being motivated for approval. 
Why did I say yes to that appointment with that person? Was it really because I love that person and I want to serve that person? Or was it because I thought I had to so that they would love me and accept me? I'm just being, I'm just being honest and vulnerable. Why did I say yes to that preaching engagement? Did I, did I, I need to evaluate that. Did I say yes to that thing because so that person, would, that church would think that I was some, something? Or did I do that because I genuinely wanted to serve the bride of Christ? What was my motivation behind doing it? I've got to check my motives and see how that's there. Rob, you can come on up. Like, down to, to small things, like when I, when I do my devotions, am I trying to check a box when I read my Bible and make sure I do my due diligence so that God loves me today? Or am I doing this because I'm meeting with the God who loved me? That's a different thing. That's a different thing to go, all right, Lord, I know you love me, and I can't wait to meet with you today to hear what you have to say. So we've got to take inventory. If you're a, if you're a social media poster, no judgment whatsoever about that, but you might want to check. Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Am I doing this because I need validation? Is this the validation that I really need? If you're checking how many likes you got on the thing, like, why am I doing that? Come on, real talk. What's my motivation? If I'm serving in a ministry in the church, why am I doing that? Am I doing that to look holy? Am I doing that because I'm trying to check a box because I know that's what Christian people are supposed to do? Why am I doing that? Like, it's, it's really good to do an inventory. Again, this is the thing of taking every, every thought captive. Now, look, you can, like, overdo this and make yourself maddened, like, and question every little thing that you do. Like, that's not necessarily healthy either. But if you never ask the question, it's a good question to ask. Why are you doing what you're doing? How much of it is to seek the approval of God or seek the approval of other people? I think the approval with other people thing is a bit more tricky. It's tricky for different reasons. We, the reality is God has made us to be the kind of people who need to hear words of affirmation from people who love us. That's just, that's just true. It's true about who we are. The challenge is most of us don't know what a healthy version of that looks like. And so we just don't know how to, we don't, we don't know how to not go seeking that. And we don't know how to give it to other people. And so it's this weird kind of thing. And so here's what I would just say about that. You, everybody should have maybe two or three people in your life who really know everything about you. They know every detail and are willing to be grace and truth tellers in your life. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's, maybe it's not, maybe it's a best friend, but you should have a few people in your life 
who can be grace and truth tellers, who know everything about you. And I would be really prayerful and discerning about what those people who have your best interest in mind think about you. Does that make sense? And not worry about everybody else. And I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to be totally transparent and honest, sometimes those people are hard to find. But you have to make sure that that comes a distant second to what your heavenly Father will think about you. Because if you don't, I'm just going to tell you, your spouse is going to let you down, your friend's going to let you down, whoever those two to three people are, guess what? Sin has affected them too. And they're going to fall short. We all have that glory deficit. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So that means there's no way I can perfectly give the approval to my kids. I just kind of blew an approval moment with my kids last night. There's no way that I can, I, can, I can do that perfectly. No way. So my sense of value and worth has to be anchored in what God says is true about me. And everything else runs through that filter. Does that make sense? Because then it doesn't matter. It's like, I know what my father says about me. That's how Jesus wins this battle. I know what my father says about me. I do not need to put it to the test. And the only way to do that is to do what we talked about the last two weeks, which is to feast on the word of God. What does his word say is true about you? Who does the father in heaven say that you are? What has he affirmed in you? What has he spoken to you? Who does God say that you are? Because if you don't know that, you will be tossed around by the winds and waves of other people's opinions all of the time. And if you know what his opinion about you is, and you know his word, it's easier to find those two or three people to say, hey, come in close. I need you to speak in. I need you to tell me truth. I need you to show me grace. Because the reality is, the Father wants us to live free like Jesus. He wants us to live free like Jesus. He wants you to live free like Jesus. So take just a second right now. Close your eyes and just get into a posture of prayer. What is the Lord saying to you right now about this? What's he highlighting for you? Maybe there's a need for confession to say, yeah, Lord, I, I have a hard time believing what you say is true about me. Or, yeah, Lord, I, I feel like I've been chasing the opinions and the applause of people. I've been living with, a, with what the Bible and people talk about as the fear of men. I've been living in that, Lord, and I need freedom from it. Maybe right now, the Lord, even while I was talking, was reminding you and showing you, and maybe it was the enemy even doing this, of how people have disappointed you and let you down in this area. Just talk, talk to the Lord about that. Yeah, Lord, I've, I've been disappointed. I don't feel like I got what I needed from my mother or my father. Think about the psalm that says, even though my father and my mother forsake me, you have, you have something for us, Lord, that's directly from you.
right now maybe you're even reminded of specific areas of your life that you feel like you've compromised in or um, have uh, behaviors that you have that are trying to win the approval of other people. Maybe there's even a spirit of legalism in you that's trying to win God's favor by, by your good behavior. The Lord's just highlighting that for you. Lord, I pray for freedom for anyone who might be struggling with that. I pray for healing for anyone who, um, whose heart has been wounded. Lord, I pray for freedom for, for myself and others who have made themselves vulnerable to the praise of and applause of other people, Lord, who their sense of value and worth is caught up in the opinions of others, Lord. Would you set us free, Jesus? Lord, help us to take you at your word and believe what you say, that we are your beloved sons and daughters in whom you are well pleased. Lord Jesus, help us to apply the I love you of the cross to our life right now and to stand forgiven and free based off of the work of Jesus and not by any works of righteousness of our own, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel that while we were enemies, you died for us. While we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you you saw something worth redeeming. What a gracious God you are. What a kind and merciful God you are. We love you, Lord. You deserve all of our affection, Lord. You deserve all of our devotion, Lord. You deserve all of our attention, Lord. We Forgive us for putting anything in the place where only you deserve, where only you matters, Lord. Your thoughts, your opinions, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Set us free. Set us free, Lord. Bring freedoms to our mind. Wash our minds. Renew our minds, Lord, so that we might know, Lord, what your good, acceptable, perfect, and pleasing will is, Lord. Transform our minds. Renew our minds in you, Jesus. I think maybe um, there are some people for whom this temptation, this test, um, is maybe a bigger deal. And you feel like, I, I would lo- I'd really like to be free of this. And so tonight, I believe that you can experience freedom. Uh, and uh, so I would just love for you to come and spend some time praying here. We have some people that can pray with you if you want it. I also feel like, uh, as I was preparing for tonight, uh, there were some people specifically who feel like... Um, I did not get the love that I know that God wanted from my parents and my household, and I know that it affects me. And I just, I feel like there needs to be some healing of that in my life. Uh, So we would just love to pray for you, care for you, love you uh, here. If that's you, you say, you know what, in my upbringing, I know there's something that's broken, and I feel like like that's affecting my whole life. Just know that the Lord sees you. He cares about that. There's no condemnation in that that you should be carrying around. Like there's just, there is just the grace of the Lord for you in that. He wants to see you walk in freedom. And so if you'd like prayer for that, come up and pray. Otherwise, you guys have an amazing week. I love you so much, and we'll see you, see you next Sunday. Come up and pray if you need prayer.